Hey cuties, I'm Miles Sexton, a content creator, activist, and loud and proud disruptor of the norm. On Our Private Bits, we talk about the things and people that don't get talked about enough or at all. Trust me, as a sober, HIV-positive, non-binary person, I would know. Join me as I chat with people in my life and from around the world whose stories deserve to be heard. Maybe you'll learn something new and you will definitely LOL. Our Private Bits is also part of the ACAST Creator Network. All right, cuties. Today on Our Private Bits, we have Cal Stella Martyr, who is joining us, who is a biracial Filipino-Canadian currently residing in Treaty 7 territory in Lethbridge, Alberta. She is the host and creator of Queer in Alberta podcast, a two-time recipient of the TELUS Story Hive Voices grant, which provided Queer in Alberta with a national distribution on Optic TV. Outside of podcasting, she is an artist, heritage professional, and a 2S LGBTQIA plus advocate. <laughs> Want to say hi, babe? <laughs> I do. Thank you for that Gorgina intro. I feel so special <laughs> to be on the show. But yeah, just like Miles said, my name is Kels. I'm a Koposi Kelsey. I'm a Filipino-Canadian coming to you from Lethbridge, Alberta. And I'm guessing a lot of you probably have not heard of Lethbridge. So it's <laughs> exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> probably saw the gorgeous bridge. It's a really pretty city, but probably not the most famous in Alberta. Hey, next time I come, when Tyler and I head out there, we need to come visit. So, oh my God, I would actually be so hilarious if you came to Lethbridge. I take you to all the spots, but definitely leave promptly after to go to the mountains or something. <laughs> Deal, it's a date. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, we had the opportunity recently to get to work together on a little get, get It Gets Better panel. And Honestly, I, it, it's so funny because I didn't, I had no idea who you were prior to the panel. And I <laughs> was just like, who is this magical being with the most energetic energy? And just, I don't know, you, you meet like someone who is like, this person needs to do radio or something. I, I felt like I automatically had that reaction to you. I was like, you just have the, like something about the way that you talk that I'm like, I'm hooked. I'm, I, I, I'm into it. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I mean, as a fellow podcast host, that does make me happy to hear. I did get into it because people were like, you know, you should do this. You should do this. And I'd never saw it for myself. But yes, we did meet at that event. And I feel so bad because I was also like encountering you for the first time. And I loved your energy, your outfits, everything about you. I was like, this individual is really, really cool. So I'm very happy to do this with you today. Oh my gosh. And I can't wait to get into it. I feel like you are such a wealth of knowledge for so many people. And and I think it's a bit unique because I have to be honest, I don't, I, I haven't, to be honest, like had a lot of conversations, even just in my life in general with like queer people who identify even as just like part Filipino, you know, like it's, mm. I, I still think that there, you know, there's so many conversations, you know, about this and especially in Canada, you know, um, so I'm excited to kind of like deep dive into this a bit. So tell me a little bit about like what growing up was like in Alberta, because I think we're both from small towns. So I'm curious to like, hear about <laughs> your experience. I feel like I got to be careful with how I approach this because like I um there's so many different ways I could tell this story. One thing with my podcast, Queer in Alberta, that I really try to emphasize is that no one person can speak for the prairies. So totally. somebody from like Calgary or Edmonton is going to have a very different story if you were to ask them the same question versus me growing up in a 5,000 population town again. So for me, it was like, 
I grew up in a really isolated community, not just in terms of queerness, but also for my ethnic and racial identity. Like Miles has said, I am half Filipino. And it took me until probably my early 20s to really begin to understand not just my queerness, but what that piece of my identity meant as well. And that was from leaving that small town, going to bigger urban centers like Lethbridge. That's when I started to meet more people from all these different walks of my life and to start asking those questions about what it means to be in this social body in this specific place. So now, like going back, though, because, you know, you you, you say that you had to leave and go to these more mm-hmm. like, you know, larger cities like. So I, I don't know, like for myself, like, sorry, I'm going to share a little a personal thing first, because it's like I felt like I wouldn't change the way that I grew up like growing up in a small Mm, town for myself mm -hmm. personally, because I I really appreciated that I I grew up in a town of like 2000 people. So it like forced me to be like, I'm going to go out into nature and I'm going to like use my imagination. And I, and I really appreciated that piece, but I think there's also that like isolation piece, you know, that comes Mm -hmm. with it. Like, did you ever feel like, I guess, like when you were growing up in that town, that there wasn't like that you were like trying to connect with something or you were trying to find something that you couldn't find like within where you grew up? Yeah, I mean, I always felt like the awkward kid out, like everybody else would laugh at everybody else's jokes and it was never me. You know, I always felt like I just didn't fit in is the real thing I'm trying to say. And for so long, I didn't necessarily understand why that was. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was just being different. I often get told that I'm white passing, which I do recognize the privilege in being half white in this body. But I still have all of these experiences that contradict like if I was just a white person. I still had ways that I was treated growing up and even day to day in my life or my career that wouldn't happen if I was just white, like the world was Mm -hmm. trying to tell me. And so in that small town, it was like trying to understand why these things were happening to me because I also thought I was just white at that time. I always thought like my mom was Filipino, but not me. Mm, so interesting. Mm-hmm. Why do you it think was that really, was? really weird. You know, it's a really deep thing, Miles, where like <sighs> biracial Filipinos, it can be really tricky where you're either like embraced by the community or maybe kind of like excluded in some ways because of your whiteness or if it's a different like combination of ethnic identities it's it's always like you're you're not allowed to be one thing because you are also another and it kind of cancels each other out do you know what I'm saying so absolutely I mean there's I think it's really interesting you know the more I learn and grow and have conversations like this of just like how much also just like internalized like racism sort of like exists within communities with like for their own community you know like um, mm-hmm. you know, I read this really great book and I'm totally blanking on the name, but it was like about a, a Korean American woman and her sort mm-hmm. of like experience of growing up in, like, I think it was San Francisco and just like how her parents tried to make her as like, as white as possible. But she was like, no, like I want to celebrate my culture and I want to learn about it. But they're, they're like out of safety. Her parents didn't want her to sort of like embrace that. So was that similar for you? Oh, it's absolutely a theme that I think is really still prevalent in today's culture of immigration. Um, There is a really great anthropologist named Anna Singh. She wrote a book called The Mushroom at the End of the World that actually touches Mm. on a lot of these things, where she studied different waves of um, Asian immigrants going to the United States and looked at how older generations, when they came, exactly what you're saying, their parents would not share their language, would give them very 
American quote unquote names. They didn't want any accent on their English. So they really wanted them to assimilate so they wouldn't be discriminated against. But now people that are immigrating have a bit more freedom to maintain those aspects of their culture just because our society is changing and opening up a bit. Well, it's exciting to hear that, you know, it is changing. But I guess, like, going going back, is there, like, I see you were sort of saying, like, okay, so it, one sort of cancels out the other. Is there, mm-hmm. like, is that shifting, you know, now, like, within, within the, like, sub-communities? I think it's hard. Um, even, like, I think this is really an interesting episode because, like you're saying, a lot of people don't know about the intricacies of the Filipino community, yeah. especially when you're looking at, say, being Filipino-Canadian versus mm-hmm. still being in the Philippines. There's even, like, um, kind of infighting where, Filipinos don't believe that Filipino Americans are actually Filipino and like all these sorts of things because of culture. Yes, it really is. And so for me now at this point, when thinking about identity, it's like my whole life has been a narrative of people telling me what I can and cannot be. And my 20s has been this kind of moment of coming to this point of actually it doesn't matter what everybody else says because this is who I am. This is Mm -hmm. the body I was born into. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing regardless if other people can't understand it. Absolutely. I'm glad that you're you're embracing it because I think that that is like our, you know, it's sort of like, I think as this generation, right, we need to be able to like, okay, how do we like take sort of what these experiences that have happened to us and how do we like mm-hmm. redirect them? How do we learn? How do we not necessarily be like, oh, well, this happened and I'm not going to let any, you know, and I'm just going to allow it to be what it was, you know, where we're, I think where a lot of us are creating change maybe around these mm-hmm. experiences that, that have happened to us. So I love that you're like sort of going in and reclaiming, you know, this part of your identity of who you are. So is there like an intersectionality between, I think, like your queerness and, you know, I think like your, also your cultural identity? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something that I'm beginning to explore now. And a lot of like my friends who are also first generation or second generation immigrants and queer and Filipino we're all asking ourselves this question at the same mm-hmm. time in our lives, like late 20s, mid 20s, it's just boom, all the identity questions. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like one thing that's really kind of like almost daunting for me is like trying to hold up the responsibility of learning my culture while living in the diaspora, but also understanding that the Philippines was colonized for 333 years by the Spanish. And there is a whole iteration of being before that, particularly with respect to queerness. So like unpacking what it means to be Filipino today, but then also understanding my history before colonialism. So it's like, ah, I'm trying to do all of this in Lethbridge. I mean, it's a huge piece, right? Like, because I even think, you know, when you look back historically, you know, at, at a lot of cultures, you know, very few of them actually have like, you know, the original, you know, sort of, I guess, like history of, of how, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, kind of like pre-colonialism. And, you know, so I find it so fascinating, you know, when, when you know, now we have the term like two-spirit or in India, you know, you have the Hydra and, um, you know, in like Hawaii, you have the Mushe. Like, it's like that there was a lot of these, like, you know, what we would maybe now label as queer people, you know, or trans mm-hmm. people that existed, you know, prior, prior to, you know, colonialism. But was there, is there, like, in the Philippines, like, was there a group of, like, people that, that, uh, that you know, would ne- kind of be identified as, as queer or, like, trans people? And, like, was there a word for, for them? 
Yeah. And again, this is like my journey of learning. And to anyone who's Pinoy and maybe listening, and if I mispronounce anything, please forgive me, Paul. I'm learning. I'm doing my best. But uh, one kind of figure like what you're speaking to that comes to my mind is the Babaylan. And this individual in a community, as far as I'm aware, would definitely have like those characteristics that we associate with queerness or transness and would often hold um, a position of like spiritual power or um, even like what's the word? Um, kind of like hierarchy within a community mm-hmm. almost like be a, a leader in the community is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, there's absolutely these ancestors in our bloodline that we can look to. And it's really special to see Filipinos reclaiming that to understand who we are. I love it. You know, the more I can learn about this, it makes me so excited because, you know, like, right. Like, it's just, I don't know, you know, because I think I'm sure maybe you, you might have felt this way when you were younger, too. But like, you know, I think when when you grow up in a small town, and you don't have references to to people to queerness to things, you know, and, um, you know, it can feel very isolating and alone. And, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and you, you very much internalize a lot of this, sort of shame and stigma because you're like, I, why do I not fit in? You know, like why when I read stories and I learn about history, I'm not there, you know? And I think it just really goes to the fact of how, you know, I'm going to say the word groomed just because I, I, I think that it, mm. that it very much is, is that, you know, I think for myself, I see for myself that I grew up in a school system that I was being groomed to be heterosexual. And I learned about Mm -hmm. a very white, a whitewashed version of history, you know? And, and so it's like, you know, I think it's interesting now sort of as an adult, like going back and being like, wow, like all of this information existed and, and someone like myself has existed just as long as everyone else and was celebrated. And, you know, and I, I think it's really empowering, you know, kind of discovering that again, you know, or, or mm-hmm. learning and discovering it now because it just changes like so much my perspective. And that's why I really hope that like youth today, like can start learning about this a lot earlier because I think it changes our, our like mental perspective of how we view ourselves. Oh, absolutely. It's representation. We always hear that it saves lives, but it couldn't be more true and well-founded. When you can see yourself in the world and people like you, it gives you a vision for the way your life could be someday or that you are not out of the norm. It's so, it's so true. So absolutely true. So going back a little bit to you, to, just to kind of finish this, this question off, I think, so when you were growing up in your small town, like, who did you gravitate towards? Because like, was there other Filipinos that you could hang out with? Was there other people that didn't necessarily fit in that you that you kind of like latched mm-hmm. on to to be friends with? Like, what was that like? <laughs> Miles, we're queer theater kids, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, your girl was in Into the Woods. She was in all the productions. But, you know, to kind of also touch on the Filipino community, What's really interesting is I went to Toronto this summer for Pride and it was fantastic. Went with a friend, saw the parade, and they had some Filipino queens come out, but there were only like two or three of them and they had no like sign. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, what's going on? Because at Calgary Pride, we have like a 30 plus person entourage. There's dancing, our cultura, all of it. So I realized that like many Filipinos seem to have immigrated to Western Canada versus Mm -hmm. Eastern. 
Um, so I was really lucky in that sense that even though I was in a 5,000 population town, there were Filipino Christmas parties at like the town rec center. Um, there were other kids my age that I got to hang out with when we would all get together with the titas, the aunties and have yeah. food and parties. So I was actually very immersed in that part of my identity, but it was the weirdest, like we were saying earlier, where I still kind of separated myself from it because of my whiteness. Hmm. So now, now with that, like, are you trying, I guess you, you are trying to like reclaim, I think a bit of it, but like, have you been able to sort of like create space now, like to foster, you know, sort of this, this new mm-hmm. kind of community, I guess, like with that is like kind of bridging both. It's been so beautiful and so healing. Like I've actually made some wonderful friends and like the last year who I mentioned were also Pinoy and queer. And I guess for anybody listening, Pinoy is another word for like Filipino or Filipino. Um, (laughs) There's many different terms that we could use. So I kind of switch and use them interchangeably. But um, to answer your question again, yeah, like I've been making friends that also share these identities and this queer experience. And to be able to be in a room with people where you're you're seen for your whole self and recognized for all parts of you. We talk about how important that is like in straight situations to be recognized as a queer person, but there's that additional layer of also being seen as Pinoy. Absolutely. You know, like I obviously it's it's a slightly different, but like I, I find it, you know, I think there's like parallels, but you know, like, I'll never forget, like, just the first pr- first time I met someone who was queer, but also HIV positive, you know, and it was like, we, I remember, like, meeting them and just getting to be able to, like, talk about our shared experience. And it was just, there is, there's, like, this other sense of, like, I almost like, like, you can relax, right? It's like, yes, I think there's, there is this thing that I think that we do where, you know, we're still always in sort of, like, protective mode. Right. Of like, you know, of not letting our walls down, not letting our protective shields sort of down when we're around people. And, you know, I think that comes from trauma and shame. And and so it's like when when you do get to find people who have this sort of same shared experience, it's like, you know, I, I think of it as like an exhale of just like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then like being able to like talk about your experience. It's just like, I don't think there's a, more, a better experience of feeling so seen you know, when, when you can sort of find that community. And, and I really try to talk to, to, you know, kids and people around me of like how important this is to find, you know, because yes, it's, you know, maybe you have a friends group that you've had for a really long time, but there still is like a difference of experience when you can find other people too, that, you know, have gone through maybe something very similar to you or have the same cultural background as you that are also queer, you know, like, there's, there's a beautiful bonding there. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like both an exhale, as you say, and this deep, profound, like warmth and belonging in mm-hmm. your heart. I was, um so with my work day to day, also in the heritage sector here in Canada, I get the opportunity and privilege to work a lot with the Blackfoot community here in Southern Alberta. And I was having, oh, it's been an amazing journey because There's just so much, even though we've had different experiences with colonialism, but so many kind of like relational touch points that I've heard from a lot of Indigenous folk when they talk to 
Filipinos in particular. Mm -hmm. But I was having tea with a Blackfoot elder and she told me that culture is something that you do every single day. It's not like a thing. It's just every day living and breathing. And so when I'm with my Pinoy friends, like in Calgary, and we're, say, all just at somebody's apartment and we're having food together and the way we serve one another, the way that we engage, like that is culture. And that's something that I really miss when I'm away from them. I think that's a really good point to sort of share because mm-hmm. I, I don't think a lot of people like look at culture that way. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that you shared that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, do you find that like, I guess like now where you are sort of in your journey, like how are you finding maybe maybe your gender expression has like evolved and changed, but like what has been like finding that sort of gender, your own gender expression, and I guess like your journey of like coming to where you are now? Mm-hmm. Well, I think again, like not seeing queer people around me in a small town. And then when I finally came out after moving here to Lethbridge, it still wasn't like, you know, you go to Toronto and there's Church Street and there's yeah. queers everywhere, right? Like there's nobody that's like a big, obvious ref- ref- reference point, pardon me. Um, so like many queer youth, especially in the 2010s, I went online to like YouTube and et cetera mm-hmm. to see other queer people living authentically. And so this might be really niche for like queer women or like, you know, female audiences listening. But there was this really popular group of lesbians on YouTube in like the 2010s. They were making content, all filming together. That was like my reference point of like, how do I dress? How do I carry myself? How do I act as a queer woman? And so it's actually really funny for me to go back and look at photos of me from 2014 or so now, because I'm like, I'm in the snapbacks, I'm in the joggers, the baggy, baggy t-shirt. And so it was like finding out I was queer, accepting it, thinking this is how I had to look as a queer woman in order to be recognized by other queer women. And then realizing there is no one prescribed style for queerness and your gender expression, like these things are so rigid in our minds, but they don't Mm -hmm. have to be. How did it feel though? Like, I guess, would you say like prior to that, were you, were you leaning more into like your divine femininity? And then like, it was sort of like on the other side of the spectrum, leaning into a bit more of like that masculine sort of aesthetic, like, would you define it that way? I think that like I felt when you were talking about being groomed for straightness, like I grew up in a very religious home. There was a very specific way that I was supposed to look and carry Mm -hmm. myself. And so I really subscribed to that for a long time, I guess, hyper feminine in some ways. And then when I came out, it was like, boom, the snapbacks, the the Tumblr core, like all of it. Yeah. And then uh, I felt like I was hot shit at that time, I have to say. But then once I kind of, you know, had my fun, had my experimentation, I realized I'm not so much super feminine or super masculine. I like to have fluidity. I like Mm -hmm. to blend my styles. And some people have told me that, you know, the way I present myself isn't necessarily feminine, quote unquote. And they've asked me if I use they, them pronouns. And for a long time, I was always like, no, I'm very secure in my femininity. I thought that, you know, just because my definition of femininity isn't the norm doesn't mean that's not who I am. Mm -hmm. I I think this is really interesting. It's been something I've been asking a lot of people lately on the podcast is like, you know, like what makes you feel masculine and like what makes you feel Mm -hmm. feminine, you know? So, So I'm curious, like, how would you describe that for yourself? 
Mm, I think it definitely fluctuates. And right now I'm sitting at a hotter than your 90s boyfriend. That makes me feel very masculine. Um, yeah, you know, like a kind of cropped, not kind of button up like this. Yes. I really like um, fun patterns and textures mm-hmm. or metallic-y textures. I like um, definitely not your Wrangler core that you might associate with Alberta. We're yassifying the prairies. Yeah, I love it. And then what makes you feel like, what makes you feel feminine? makeup actually okay. i really like to play around like even today i'm wearing a little bit of that color pop sailor moon glitter I that it. i got for it's super like cheap it's hitting me like as you turn I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you my partner always laughs at me she's like i always find glitter in your hair these days even when i don't have this on my face it just sticks around forever like the herpes of cosmetics so <laughs> I think so. I think you got it. They should rebrand, actually. Totally. I think it's a really good selling point. (laughs) Yeah, a niche audience. But you know what? Slay. Totally. You know, well, it's like how to destigmatize, like, you know. Exactly. STI. So it's good. Colourpop can do it. I have faith. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, and, and I think it's interesting because I think we have the power to, I think, like, really like figure out like what makes us feel these you know these like because you know like feeling masculine or feminine because at the end of the day like we as humans Mm -hmm. created this right and I think we created these constructs of what masculinity is and what femininity is and I think a lot of people get so hung up with like being like oh like I need to like conform to like feel this but that's actually like not true like it's like because I you know I on another podcast I talked about you know like when I am in a dress and like, you know, with my most, you know, like most my, all my like makeup on and my hair is all done. That's when I feel my most masculine. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's like when I'm in my sweatsuit and I'm like cozy and like, you know, feel like quiet and introverted. Like that's, that's to me when I feel my most feminine, you know, like when I'm like yeah, working on yeah. myself and giving to myself. And so it's like, you know, I think it's like, it's a very different feeling you know, and mm-hmm. but I, that's how I've been able to define it for myself. And I, and I, and I, I think I want to like inspire more people to really like embrace that sort of idea of like, you, you have the control and the power to, to do that for yourselves. So. Yes, absolutely. And I think too, like, regardless of the clothing that you have on for myself, it's always been more of like an energy thing. Mm-hmm. Like I wake up not to sound like a crystal gourly, you know, but I wake <laughs> up in the morning and I have maybe like more of a masculine energy. You just mm-hmm. feel it in your totally. body. And you don't have to like have certain clothes that prescribe to that. You can have things in your wardrobe that maybe help you channel those days that you're feeling a little more masculine or feminine mm-hmm. or in between. But yeah, I've even felt that way where it's like with my queerness, it's not even I have to dress a certain way to tell other people I'm queer. It's just my presence, the way I carry myself, that in itself is queer. It absolutely is. And I agree. It doesn't always have to be about like the clothing or the makeup or the hair. You know, it it is an energetic thing because, you know, we all flow, right? Like there is absolutely Mm -hmm. days where I'm like, you know, like, I feel like I'm like, oh, my, my divine femininity needs some love today, you know, and I want to like lean in yes. or my divine masculinity needs a little extra love. So it's true. And I hope more people have permission to like feel both, you know, because it's just, you know, when, mm-hmm. you know, when we think about toxic masculinity, it's like, you know, it, I think a lot of that just like comes from, you know, the, the, the fear of femininity and the shame of femininity for, for people yes. to be not be able to even like experiment with it, you know, and 
it's just like, no, that is a part of you and that it's inside of there. and It wants to be nurtured and soothed too. Mm-hmm. And you know, that makes me think of even the strength of toxic masculinity for me as a young girl was like, I hated anything feminine and I hated really? the color pink. Oh yeah. I was like, pink is weak. Ballerinas in tutus, they're not strong. Cause that's what the world around me was saying about mm-hmm. being a girl. And so I was always a really big tomboy is what I was called when I was young. Yes. And it was because it didn't make sense to me in my brain. I was like, I'm a girl, but I'm strong and capable. But to be a girl in the way that the world says I have to be one, I can't be those things. So it just never made sense until I got older. And like we're saying, broaden my perspective. And now I'm like, pink, we're in our Barbie era. Let's yeah. go. I love it. I love it. How, how does your, like, how has your family been, I guess, like, along your sort of journey to get to, like, to get to this point to where you are? Like, are they, are they super into you? Like, how you're, how you're embracing your queerness and bridging, you know, your culture into it? No. No. Um, no, yeah. And I, I want again to definitely say that not all Filipino families are like that. Some mm-hmm. can be exceptionally supportive. But um, from my understanding of politics and norms in our country, it can be very much either very supportive or mm-hmm. very like Catholic or religious and yes. having certain views about queerness and gender. So my family is more on this side of things, on the more conservative, on the more Christian And so, yeah, it's been 10 years since I came up to my mom and it hasn't been a smooth, easy journey. Um, But I will say she did meet my partner, which is a story that I shared with you when we first met Miles. Yeah. And she made her a meal. And like that in itself is a huge step forward. Her opening the door to the home and cooking for her like that spoke volumes, even if my mom was very tight lipped throughout the entire encounter. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It really is, you know, and and I think that sometimes too, like, you know, as as much as it hurts, I think like in those Mm -hmm. sort of moments of like, you know, we also you know, we need to like recognize those little, those little steps and how like big just having a meal, I think can really be. Yes. And them opening the door to someone, you know, because, you know, like, yes, we're living our lives and we have our our dreams and our, our ideas of like where we want our life to go. But, you know, and I think our parents also have that sort of same idea. And, and I think there is, there sometimes needs to be this like halfway, like how can we meet each other mm-hmm. halfway somewhere, you know? And, um, cause I know like for me, I, I was super angry when I first came out. Like I yeah. was just like, I, I needed acceptance. It needed to happen right now. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to hear anything. And I, I just, you know, looking back, I wish that I maybe handled things a bit different, but you know, I didn't really have the, the tools then either to, to really do that. But, you know, I think the more we can have patience, 
you know, sometimes mm-hmm. with their parents and, and just understand that sometimes they're trying, they're doing the best that they can, you know, with, with what they have too is, is, is really something important to recognize. And do you, do you feel like you're, you know, that there is going to be like a next step with your, with your mom? I mean, I'm keeping my heart open to it. You know, um, when you're talking about that anger, when you were younger, I couldn't help but, you know, be reminded of my younger self. It really mm. resonated what you said, because you feel, I think, when you're that age, so much like you've spent so long going over it. And now you're ready to be seen and embraced that you maybe forget for someone that isn't on the same page, but still loves you. It's new to them. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's been 10 years, which sounds far too long. But totally. when my mom made like that meal for her, um, I dropped my partner off and then came back home and my mom was kind of tense. I just gave her the biggest hug. And I was like, thank you so Aww. much for doing that. <laughs> you know, like meeting her halfway it didn't have to be flowing conversation, just the fact that it happened. Right. Totally. How, how did she respond to that hug? I think she was surprised. I think she was expecting I was going to be mad at her for not <laughs> being more engaging. But I think that's some of the beauty of growing up a bit is realizing, you know what, this was huge and this is something to celebrate rather than be upset with the further distance that we still have to go. Absolutely. Oh, that's so that's really inspiring to hear. It's something I admire yeah. about you. You know, you were you were so <laughs> good at you know, seeing the light in, in these sort of situations that I think that can be very heavy and can feel a bit mm. dark sometimes, right? So thank, thank yeah. you for being a light. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. You make me blush over here on the prairies, Maya. <laughs> <laughs> You're so cute. So I'm, I'm curious because I, I totally forgot to ask you earlier and I do, mm-hmm. I do would love to talk about it, but what was like the first time that you like heard the word like gay or lesbian or queer and like what was that yeah what was that moment like for you Mm -hmm. yeah I mean we were from the generation that in school elementary school junior high all of it the phrase that's so gay was Mm -hmm. really prominent and of course that's loaded with all kinds of negative connotation um I was also old enough that teachers were starting to speak against that. They'd be like, we don't say that. It's not a nice thing to say. Shut it down. Mm-hmm. So it never really registered too much in my own mind. But the memory that instantly comes up when you ask me that question is my father um, still owns a gas station. That's what my parents do. Oh, cool. And I know I was in my like little gas station attendant era from the oh, age of zero to 17. <laughs> so um Oh, it was a time. But we were working together one day and these two women came into the store and they left after paying, drove away in their pickup truck. And my dad pointed at them and he leaned in close to me and he was like, those two are together and not in a good way. And that was my first time. like, Yeah, my first time seeing queer women and immediately being told that it was, again, framed in a really poor light. Oh my gosh. So how did, did you internalize that? I think I did for a long time. Like I really, I hate to say it, but growing up in such narrow kind of narrow minded circumstances, I had a lot of views that I would definitely denounce today. And a lot of that was internalized homophobia. Like I went to Christian Bible camp where we were talking about all of these things and definitely was like, this is the verse in the Bible that says this is bad, which is greatly ironic now if we look at things. Totally. So how have you, I guess, like navigated that 
to get to this point where you are now? Like, what was there something that was like really impactful for you to like heal and like reclaim your power over that? Mm, You mean like what kind of empowered me to come out or that journey of acceptance? I guess I'm just like sort of like letting go of maybe your your own internalized Mm -hmm. like homophobia or queer phobia that sort of like stuck with you. Yeah, well, I think when... (laughs) When I kind of realized that the feelings I had for some of my female friends were not just platonic and I couldn't run away from them, like I really had this whole moment of coming out, I guess, and awareness to myself when I was in high school, graduated, moved to Lethbridge, and I was like, okay, she's going to be straight from this moment on. (laughs) That's how it's going to go. And obviously it didn't work. So after like, you know, that experience and the fertility of running away from myself. I was like, okay, this is going to follow me no matter where I go. Mm -hmm. So we might as well look at it head on. That was one step. And then do you mind just repeating the second part of your question, Miles? Yeah, I guess like what, what was it that helped you sort of like reclaim your power over sort Mm -hmm. of that, like the, the own internalized, like queer phobia or homophobia? Because I think like, you know, there's like coming out, but then it's like that is sort of like the second piece of like what we have to sort of like unpack and dismantle, yeah. I think, within us, right? Mm-hmm. I think it takes a long time for some people. Like, um, and again, I don't want to paint all religion or religious experiences under a negative light because there are some queer folks that still carry their faith and it's totally. a very important part of who they are. But for me, like, even in other aspects of my life, growing up in that environment, there was so much that in my 20s, I had to deconstruct and unlearn for myself. And so one thing that in answering this question, I want to say is for people that perhaps were religious previously or walking away from a belief system that didn't make room for them, I I don't want you to feel like guilt or like this kind of pain towards yourself if you're still grappling with those teachings from your formative years. They're called formative for a reason. It's so hard to unlearn things that have been drilled into you from such a young age. Mm -hmm. So even if you've been away from the church or whatever it is for, say, 10 plus years, every once in a while, there might be a flare up of something that triggers something that you thought in a different life that doesn't add up to today, if that makes sense. It's so it's so true. I like even for myself, like I feel like when I look back at, you know, sort of just my own behavior after I came out, you know, like I like even just like the men that I would try to date at that time, you know, were like super hyper, like feminine, like men, because I was like, oh, Mm. like I still need to like be a man and I still need to be like the masculine one. And, but then there was sort of this like, other spectrum shame that sort of came in because like you know Mm -hmm. then I was like bottoming in the bedroom and was like oh I had so much shame about that and I was like Mm -hmm. you know like oh this is bad because it's feminine you know and so there was like there was so much of this like not only just like queer phobia and internalized homophobia that I had but also this like kind of feminine phobia that I had to sort of like dismantle and you know, but it it really took a lot of like, for me anyway, it took a lot of like self-awareness and, and really like breaking down, like, you know, when I would think something or I would say something, I'd be like, why did I say that? Like, and where yes. does, that, does that sort of come from? Because, or like, why am I reacting this way? Why am I feeling this way? Um, mm-hmm. Cause there's so, there's so many sort of like moments of that, or even just like in how, I don't know how it is within 
the like more the lesbian community or the like but like is do you Mm -hmm. find that there is a lot of like judgment that sort of happens like within the subcategories of that community a judgment how like I guess like how like for example like in the queer community like I feel like a lot of like feminine gay men it's like they're looked at as like non-attractive you know, or mm. it's like, you know, hyper masculinity is looked at in like muscles and like body hair. It's like all looked at as like what the most attractive like sort of thing is. And there's sort of these like divides, like I guess, like within the communities. Cause you know, like I think there's so many different types of like, you know, like you said, like being a lesbian is not just like one cookie cutter thing. I think there's so many yeah. different expressions of being a lesbian, right? So mm-hmm. do, you, do you find that there there is sort of this like this this like hierarchy that exists i think we definitely have just from my perspective again um standards of you could say standards of beauty or standards Mm. of queerness like again how you're supposed to present i was once at uh i think evo in edmonton which is the gay bar to go to in the city and i was dancing with this girl that like it was pride i was trying to you know say hi yada 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 and she looked at me and she was like oh I'm so surprised because I didn't think you were gay you aren't wearing any flannel and I was like are you (laughs) joking like I'm here in Evo dancing you know like trying to hold your hand or whatever but yeah so there's definitely these stereotypes of what you need to look like I think now I'm at a point where even like say I'm say if I was single, I don't feel those constraints as much anymore because I'm very confident again with that energy that I embody of my own queerness. Do you find that like, I guess, you know, now you're in a relationship, but like even when you were Mm -hmm. dating, were people trying to like ever force you into like one category or the other where you've been like a person that flows between? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... I don't think that's an isolated experience. And again, like you've even talked about it yourself, but I definitely can think of a couple of partners where they were more quote unquote, the feminine one. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to kind of take up this role, not even just in terms of my gender presentation and how I was dressing, but like paying for dates or opening the door Mm -hmm. for them. Like that really traditional old school masculinity kind of started to seep into my relationships. And I, now I'm at a point where I really don't like that. No. So how how do you combat that? <laughs> well, I feel really lucky that I have a wonderful partner who it's very equal. And like, you know, we spoil each other. She is so sweet and thoughtful if I'm having a bad day, like all these sorts of things. And it's like, you don't have to fit a masculine or feminine role to treat one another like a princess or whatever, right? Like, it's just... It's a give and take back and forth. And that's something I really enjoy rather than it being one person always thinking and making all these considerations for the other because they're quote unquote more masculine. That's so true. You know, like, especially now, because I I would say that, you know, with my fiance, Tyler, it's, it is like, to me, like, I feel like one of the most, you know, opposite spectrum relationships that I've Mm -hmm. ever been in where like Tyler is so hyper-masculine, you know, and, and. I feel like, you know, the very like feminine one in comparison to him, you know? So, so, but it's interesting because like, you know, even for us, like we had to, you know, really like navigate that, you know, at the, at the beginning, because it was like, you know, I was like, no, like I'm paying for dinner. And, you know, it was like, Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it was like interesting to see how like uncomfortable I think Tyler was in the beginnings of our, of our relationship with, with like me stepping into like a more masculine role sometimes you know with him so it was like 
yeah, it was like a lot, we had a lot of conversations sort of about it. And I was like, oh, I think something's like coming up here. And like, what is, what is that, mm-hmm. you know? And we had to really sort of like talk about that because again, like, I think it's like sort of this like unlearning of, of just sort of what we've been taught, I guess, and, and know that you can flow between both. Yes. And that, and that like. That's totally it. Right. And that we, 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 sometimes, you know, it's like when it's like only one person, it's like that one-sidedness, I think just creates more like tension and resentment you know like yes I <laughs> yeah I so agree and I think like in reflecting I do have to take a bit of accountability because like when you are coming into an understanding of your queerness you're also learning how to like date in a queer totally. nature for the first <laughs> time right and so when I'm saying some of my partners would kind of fulfill that role and expectation I do have to take some accountability where when I was first dating women I thought like I had to embody a bit of that masculinity again even with like the clothing that I was wearing so there was some of me feeding into it but the longer these relationships went on the more unfulfilled I felt because I was like I don't want to be the one always doing these things mm-hmm. and being stuck in these roles it should be a bit more give and take 100 percent oh so good so now I want to talk a little bit about Queer in Alberta podcast and and like uh, and TV like okay so like why did you start this like what was what was the story behind like the creation of this you know <laughs> oh my goodness I mean it's pretty crazy Miles like I was uh, a graduate student during the pandemic you know isolated at home doing school on the computer and I was also going through a breakup at that point. So something else that's like unique to queer relationships, and I don't know if you'd relate, is like when you're dating someone, that's like your person to have that space to be queer. And then when they're gone, you kind of lose that like safe community, queer space 100%. in some ways. Yeah, exactly. And so that happened to me in the middle of the pandemic. And so I felt arguably the most alone, not just physically in relation to other people, but also my queerness because I no longer had my partner who was the person I talked about everything with. So at that point, I started spiraling a little bit. And I was like, I got to find some community. We got to fix this. And so I just started making little TikToks about being queer in Lethbridge of all places. And the more content I put out there, the more people would comment things like, I am so shocked that you are from Alberta. And it kind of like put up this thing that has always been there, this stereotype of like queer people don't exist on the prairies. Like you can only be queer in Vancouver or Toronto. Yeah, which is totally like, (laughs) totally not true. But here it is both like, I think people in those bigger urban centers have internalized that, but we've also internalized it living here despite Mm -hmm. being queer here every day. So I thought that was really weird. And I just started um, talking about it online. And then I was getting thousands and thousands of comments from queer Albertans. And I was like, this is bizarre. If this is the case and we're all here in my comment section, like, let's just start interviewing people, essentially. So from there, I just put out a call on TikTok. I got like 60 people in my inbox in a day. And that's how the series started. Oh, my God. I love it. You know, and it's like, I love that it's like creating change because I, I totally agree. I think like mm-hmm. you know, even every time I go with Tyler back to Alberta, there's like this sort of like fear that I have of like, oh, is it going to be mm-hmm. a safe place? Like, are we going to see other queer people? And it's like, no, that's so silly that I think that because obviously there's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's in terms of like, there's 100% <laughs> there's community there, right? I just, it's just, yes. so, do, you, do you think though that like in terms of like the politics of 
of Alberta? Like, do you see like being there, you know, and living there? Like, are you seeing like a shift in a more like progressive direction? Hmm. Well, I have a really unique position in the sense that Lethbridge, where I live and where I vote in West Lethbridge, we have an NDP MLA right now. And we've had one. Yeah, we've had one for a long time. And if you look at an electoral map of Alberta, it's like blue in Southern Alberta in this one tiny little pocket of orange. So where I am in Lethbridge, like every time I tell this story, it's kind of funny because you wouldn't think that Lethbridge was like gay central for me to come out and find my identity, but it's very progressive in many ways. Yeah, and it's like this. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Edmonton, the entire city in our last election just voted NDP. Calgary, I know Calgary is also has a few spots. And the thing that is really fascinating is when I was young, it was 44 whatever years of conservative rule, unbreakable mm-hmm. in Alberta. An election could be called in like 20 minutes. This year, it went for a few hours into the night and it was almost like a 50-50 split. So and so good. what does that tell you about the changing politics of this place that has always been hyper conservative in the, in the country's mind? Yes, so true. That's amazing. It makes me so Mm -hmm. happy to hear that. Now, do you think that like with the podcast and like creating these sort of impacts, like what's your sort of like goal with it? You know, like are like, you know, obviously you're you're sharing people's stories, but I feel like there's so much more Mm -hmm. that this is gonna help to help to impact, I think, where you live. So Oh, well, thank you for saying that. You know, it, it um it really started as that representational piece again. I was like this is so strange to me that we all live here and this stereotype of um, erasure really is like doing exactly that. It's erasing our experiences every day as queer people on the prairies. I want to do even the smallest thing I can to just amplify our stories to show that we are here. Mm -hmm. But as like, you know, the series has gone Making episodes for Queer in Alberta in 2021 was very different than today in 2023, (laughs) particularly, you know, with like Saskatchewan and them using the notwithstanding clause and all the issues surrounding queer rights with children. It's a different sociopolitical environment that I'm creating this content into. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that I haven't noticed. So I'm trying to be a bit you know, maybe more selective with the stories I tell and the questions I ask to both create representation, but also to amplify the needs of my community that they're facing in this changing landscape. It's so true. Because what happened to it was like in Saskatchewan, was it something about pronouns that they're like trying to like, mm-hmm. get, I, I, I feel like I'm not I'm not saying it right. But maybe you can you can share a bit about that. But Yeah. And um, again, like I would definitely encourage everybody to do their own in-depth research. I'm not from Saskatchewan, so I have a pretty general understanding. But um, to my understanding, they now have made it law that if you are a kid in school and you want to be referred to with different pronouns or a different name than your birth name, teachers by law have to tell your parents. They cannot just let kids explore their identities in a classroom anymore. That's so awful. I, oh. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a scary time, you know. And even it like, is. And you were because I, I just saw on your Instagram story too the other day. You were going to like a, I guess like a, a an anti-protest to the protest. You know that I think that was mm-hmm. happening, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you find that because of 
the podcast has that like inspired like a lot more of your advocacy work definitely and you know for some reason when i think when we were younger like protest to me felt like something really far away i didn't necessarily see myself as a person that was going to go and have signs and all these sorts of things but that really changed when black lives matter happened for me I went to the protests here in the city and it's like since then we've had so many things socially, culturally totally. that I feel I should be present for. So, yes, I think definitely my work that I'm doing inspires me to go out there more. But sometimes it's a thing that's almost a little scary for me because I don't know the first time the um, March for One Million or whatever happened. I flew into Ottawa that day and was going to be speaking at a conference there. My flight landed three hours after the protest. And you can imagine the tensions. So as a queer person, sometimes I feel a little nervous safety-wise going mm-hmm. to these things. But the one that I went to that you're referring to, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was very, very good. And I love that you like took the approach at, at it where it was like you were just sharing stories. And like, you know, it was like, it seemed like it was... You know, I think a lot of people, like you said, like, it's like, you know, it's not just like screaming and holding mm-hmm. up signs and chanting. Like, I think it was like, no, like, let's have like, let's create a safe space sort of in this environment and share stories and educate people, you know? So I think I thought mm-hmm. that was like really powerful. And I think we all have the power to maybe create that too, right? If um, mm. it, Within those sort of spaces, right? Like, I, I think it doesn't have to always be approached from like from an anger or outrage you know that we can we can create that positivity too yeah and I think like that was also a good reason for me to go miles because when we look at social media it's often the stuff that is most sensational that's Mm going to trend so the really like violent mobs at protests or whatever it is that's the stuff that gets people's attention and then goes viral you don't see those like heartwarming stories or the real day-to-day so for me in some ways it was nice to go and see it in person and be like actually it's not tons of people screaming at me for being queer that's just what social media is picking up and showing my feed it's so true how do you like how do you find navigating this this world of social media right now because it's like you know, I think like you said like the algorithm is really like curating these very like intense clickbaity things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I definitely need to be better at taking breaks from it. Like yeah. I made even a little video when I was in Ottawa responding to a new sp- segment from CBC Saskatchewan mm-hmm. where they were just, you know, interviewing people at the March for One Million. And there was a woman speaking about how you can't know that you're gay when you're two or four or six and you have to wait until you're 17. I made a minute long video responding to that. And it went a little viral and thousands and thousands of comments. And it was so overwhelming Mm -hmm. that I just didn't post anything for like two weeks. And that was what I needed to do to kind of protect myself and my mental health. And what, I guess like when, so now you're processing (laughs) this. So like, Yeah. yeah, like how, like, I guess like what really helped you, I guess, to like let go maybe of a bit of that because I know I you know I I speak from experience and I know how heavy and destructive that could that can Mm -hmm. feel internally like do you have any sort of I guess like your what is your go-to like way of trying to just ground yourself again yeah I mean on like a bigger scale for people that are kind of doing this work in social media 
having solidarity networks has been so beneficial. And what I mean by that is like, I'm a newer quote unquote content creator. It still feels really weird to say, Um, but having people that have done this for longer than me and experienced these things, being able to DM them and be like, hey, this is what's going on in this video. How would you handle it? And a lot of the time it's put yourself first, you know, like my one friend, she was telling me that she has a separate social media account, like, uh, what do they call them? Finstas? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She's got like a Finsta that when something blows up and it's a little overwhelming, she just looks at the Finsta and it's her close friends posting their cats or whatever, like a safe online space. But I think on the smallest level, it's we don't actually need to be online all the time. We don't have to answer strangers on the internet every two seconds. And understanding that there's a difference between somebody starting discourse because they want to open their mind or have an educational moment mm. and someone that's just hateful. It's so true. Because I, and, and I like, I'm happy you brought that up because I think it's been one of the biggest learnings for me anyway, is like, mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, yeah. Is this person like actually wanting to like learn or is this person just like skewing hate? Because I, I felt like in those moments for me that I was just like going after, you know, like I was trying to respond to everyone. And then mm-hmm. I'm just like, giving these people like my energy that it's not even like worth it like they don't care they're not listening they don't want to learn it's like you know and but yet I'm like investing all my time and energy into responding to them but is that even giving me anything no it's just taking away Mm -hmm. right it's it's I'm doing it out of a place of actually shame you know because Mm -hmm. I want this person to like agree with me and I want this person to like me and I want this person to understand and I think it's really important to like recognize about the boundary that we need to sort of place between these people and and focus on the good you know the good comments the the positive comments Mm -hmm. or you know the positive people that are that are wanting to be a part of you know that conversation in, in in a productive and educational way Absolutely. And again, like my partner is fantastic because every once in a while she'd be like, Kelsey, just touch some grass. Like it's fine. Totally. <laughs> Go outside. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh my goodness, my love. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and your openness uh, on all of these subjects. I feel like we've uh, <laughs> we've jumped around a lot, but I love it. I, I, I'm here for I'm here for these types of talks. But before I let you go, I just want to make sure that everyone can find you everywhere. So where can people find you on social media? Ah, you're so sweet. Um, let me think. There is my TikTok, which is at underscore Kelsifer. So K-E-L-S-I-F-E-R. And then my Instagram is the exact same. There's just an additional underscore right in front of that. And then if you want to see the Queer in Alberta podcast, that is on Optic TV across Canada, which is so crazy. Uh, and season two is starting up. So there will be more of that okay. content soon. Uh, I know, I know. It's like this weekend is the first episode that I'm filming. But if you want to see the episodes that are out, but you don't have Optic, you can also go onto Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, as well as YouTube to see what's been made. I love it. Well, thank you so much again. And I can't wait. I feel like this is just just the beginning. And I, I can't wait to just see you continue to grow and change the world. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And I can't wait for you and your partner to come out to the prairies. We'll show you the queer community that's here because, Henny, we are vibrant. Sign me up. I Any excuse to go to Alberta, I am like, I'm so down. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do it up. It'll be so much fun. 
I love it. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,